Welcome to the Sean Pepper Podcast, where we explore the daily habits and routines of experts in a variety of fields and disciplines. Conversations here focus on digestible and actionable information people can use in their professional and personal lives, while exploring what it means to be human at work, at home, and online. Hi, everybody. In today's show, we have Kevin O'Brien. Kevin is a digital marketing guru who has made strides in the gaming industry throughout his career in Vancouver. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to the show. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me. For those people listening, can you explain how you ended up here? I mean, like on this podcast, on this journey towards becoming, you know, a mobile marketing kind of guru? Yeah, sure. I mean, I went straight into university right after high school and immediately followed a degree in marketing because I always looked at business as something I was really interested in, but I wasn't a big numbers guy. I was more into the artistic kind of creative side of business. And that's what led me into marketing. You know, when I was in university, this is 2004 when I started, Facebook hadn't even been invented yet. So about my second or third year, it started rolling out to people that had university emails. And fortunately, I did. So I was one of the first kind of groups of people on it. And immediately, I saw the appeal of social media. And I knew that it was going to be a big driver in marketing in the future. So I sort of started learning a lot about social and digital marketing as uh, started evolving during my degree. And by the time I graduated, it was what my passion was. So that led me into working at the Art Institute of Vancouver was my first job out of university. I was there as an alumni coordinator and I got to meet a lot of people from a variety of media industries. So visual effects and you know computer engineering, 3D animation, VCAD, professional recording arts and web design. And I got to sort of start learning about the industry while also kind of building my skill set as a marketer by learning about it and trying new things. So that got me a job working at a, an agency in Vancouver where I actually did blogger relations uh, back in the day when public relations was kind of shifting to online. And a lot of that involved pitching journalists on Twitter. We started building a public relations department that focused on digital media. And that involved a lot of media buying on social sites like Facebook and SlideShare and LinkedIn. And that got me even more interested in the digital marketing space. And of course, smartphones are, everyone's got one now. But at the time, they were just kind of becoming popular. And just like social media took off, a smartphone adoption started taking off. People started using their devices to search on Google instead of their computers and um, I saw, you know, saw an appeal to the uh, mobile industry, and that's what led me into mobile gaming. So, for the last almost four years now, I've been working for game studios in Vancouver. Um, currently, in between working uh, at studios, and I will hopefully have an announcement next week. I can share about where I'm going, but right now okay. it's uh, kind of in limbo. But yeah, I got uh, started working at Eastside Games after my agency life, and uh, worked on a game called Pot Farm, one of the world's largest cannabis games. And uh, I was fortunate enough to work with the studio when they released the game Trailer Park Boys. So I got to work with, you know, Mike Smith, who plays Bubbles, and the whole team over there to create ads. And to... uh, Were you a fan of the show before that happened? I got really well-versed on the terminology. Obviously, you have to learn a lot, learn a lot of Rickyisms if you need to be marketing to their fans. So sure. uh, phrases like worst case Ontario or get two birds stoned at once became pretty much norm core for the office. So yeah, I worked on that game for a bit. It was good. It was Netflix IP. They were just launching on Netflix at the time. So we had a lot right. of cool cross promotion stuff we did. And then I moved over to LBC Studios working on another weed game called Empire. I got to do some campaigns with Cheech and Chong. 
um, you know, doing a lot of interesting marketing stuff with influencers there and yeah, really helped the studio grow. So yeah, it's been an exciting ride. Um, working on some interesting titles has been a lot of fun. You know, cannabis is a very uh, prevalent topic, not only in marketing, but also in gaming and that kind of overlaps, as you could imagine, people smoking sure. weed and playing video games. But uh, yeah, weed actually became legal in Canada October 17th, I believe, last year. And I was working at LBC on the game Empire when this happened. So immediately we saw a huge spike in people searching for weed in the app stores and just finding our game because we were ranked really high for those keywords. So cannabis became kind of like a trending topic and we sort of rode the coattails of that up the charts. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I could see that. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, you're you're totally right. The whole legalization of, of marijuana has definitely shifted a lot of people's perceptions, I think, too. Um, you know, if somebody goes has a beer, somebody goes out and uses marijuana. It's not necessarily has the same stigma as it used to. Yeah, um, it's weird. Like I was at a festival last year and there was a bunch of people, you know, gathered near the front and it was a band that was playing that was very cannabis, you know, influenced. Cypress Hill, if you might yes. imagine. And uh, there was a lot of people that lit up during one of the songs. And usually at a concert, you'd see somebody smoking a joint. They're kind of like hiding it, you know. But at this concert, I saw these people kind of crouched down smoking something. And I looked over and it was a cigarette. It was like, that's now <laughs> frowned upon and like, ew, get that away from me. It's disgusting, right? Whereas it used to be, if you smoked weed, you had to be kind of incognito. So right. it totally shifted. And uh, I think with the medical benefits that are being researched and shared, that people from both sides of the political spectrum are seeing the benefit of cannabis. Yeah, for sure. And when you say that, like, you did the keywords, just this for the listeners, like, how, how does one, like... How do you search engine optimize for keywords? Like what's what's something? Yeah. So it's very similar to SEO, but it's uh, okay. it's called a- ASO. So it's actually okay. App Store Optimization. And okay. you use the back end of the Apple Store and the Google Play Store. Uh, one platform is called uh, iTunes Connect, and that's where you publish your apps and you change your store listing. And then on Google, it's the uh, Play Developer Console. So that's where you change your icon, your header, like your app's name your short description, long description, uh, and all of that influences what people see when they search and what they might click on. So you run A-B tests all the time. Sorry, can I stop you? I I know what A-B testing is, but can you explain? I think A-B testing is one of the most important kind of ways of the future. And I think more people should know about what A-B testing is. And so can you explain for the audience what A-B testing is? Yeah, so a lot of times A-B testing means you have version A and version B. And you display both versions to an audience, uh, usually split by some randomized format. And then whichever of those two versions has a higher conversion rate or whatever KPI or key performance indicator you're looking for, then that becomes a winning version. AB is kind of an abbreviation of the full uh, spectrum of what it's what it's called. A lot of times people call it multivariate testing or ABCDE FG whatever testing because you want to test multiple variants, but it really comes down to how big of an audience you have to determine how quickly you can get these results. Um, But yeah, within the Play Store, for instance, the number one thing that converts people inside of the App Store or the Play Store is the icon. So you may not have a lot to show off, just your app name and an icon. So a lot of A-B testing revolves around that piece of art. And you'll see sometimes like 15, 20% increases in conversion rates just from changing your icon. That's insane. Yeah. And, and, and how would somebody, so I develop an app or let's say I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm starting a podcast 
and I want to A-B test my logo. <laughs> yeah. How would somebody go about doing that? Like, does that look like users, like, do you, do you invite people into the office? Do you do randomized trials? Like, what does that look like in your experience with trying yeah. to actually get a rea- read and reaction? Yeah, so a lot of times, like with a logo for a company or a brand or a game, the game's logo does a lot, has a lot of research done before it's published. And that usually sticks for a long, long time. You know, with a with an icon for an app, it might just be a face from a character or some other artistic item that isn't necessarily a logo. So you're allowed to kind of get your brand's message across or some kind of imagery without needing to modify a corporate identity. When we did a logo redesign at our company, we went through extensive research within our art department, external partners. We had agencies give us, you know, feedback on what people's retention was on different graphics. You know, we even had different layouts of where our logo went on our website based off of uh, heat mapping, where we could see, do people click on this part? Like, where should we have buttons? So yeah, a lot of testing. How how do, sorry, just stop being there, because a a lot of these things I understand, but I want people to understand because I think they're so cool and and a lot of people don't understand. So heat mapping, can you just slow, kind of spend like maybe two minutes and just kind of explain how that works and how you... Yeah, so it's, I kind of call it like the footstep approach. So if you look at a beach in the morning and you see it's completely nice and groomed, the tide just went out, and you look at where all the footsteps are, the more footsteps, the more places people are playing, that's the, the brighter spots on a heat map. Um, a really cool way to see an interactive heat map, most people have the app Snapchat installed. Uh, if you actually open that app up, and swipe up from where you're taking your photos, you'll see a map. And that map shows a heat map of where people are posting snaps. So this is really cool if you're in a new city and you want to see where the nightlife is or maybe there's a big, you know, breaking news happen. There's a car accident. You can actually tune into where live, you know, posts are coming from and it's in real time. So on a website, heat mapping is basically where your mouse goes mostly. So if you think of your mouse's footsteps around your website, then you can see where people are kind of scrolling, what they click on, and it helps you optimize the design of your site so people click on things that are relevant. And, and what tools could people use that are just starting out or just like what, like wanting to understand that? Like, let's say I, yeah. I, I build my DIY site and now all of a sudden I'm going out and I want to understand, oh, do, should I put my sidebar here or should I put how, what size should the font be? Like all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. A little bit of research into uh, themes for sites helps because they do sometimes include some heat mapping with it. Like I know on WordPress, if you're browsing the theme store or you're on Azure or different theme portals, it'll show you uh, real-time interactive results from people that are using that theme. And those guys usually use that as a selling piece saying like, hey, the average time spent on this theme is like 20 seconds more than on this version. Other times that data can be provided to you from plugins. So Google Analytics actually lets you view heat maps. It's not as extensive as like seeing an actual kind of map of heat, but it shows you what percentages of different buttons are clicked on, which gives you an idea of basically the most engaged parts of your site. So usually a plugin works uh, within WordPress, but I know uh, Google Analytics also provides it. Great. That's awesome. So you're at Eastside Games and you're sitting there and then all of a sudden this project comes up and and how, how do you end up getting to work on that project? Do you have to like vote for it or what does it look like for people inside of a team like that where you have multiple projects and that are coming in and out like how does that process work for for marketers like yourself do you guys get to choose which project do you have to vote on it do you have to like is it seniority how, do, how does that work 
Yeah, so for for developing a new game, uh, especially when there's an IP involved, so like Wiz Khalifa has a game called Wiz Khalifa's Weed Farm. So yes. uh, that studio, Metamoki, would have gone through a contractual agreement with Wiz Khalifa to use his identity and his IP in their game. And then there would likely be some kind of agreement on marketing. So you're going to do these many posts and tweets to your 40 million followers, and we're going to spend this much money on advertising. So they share the revenue across some sort of agreed upon amount. And those are unique in that you sort of have brand guidelines you have to follow. When there's the likeness of a celebrity, you have to really uh, work closely with their team to ensure that it's approved. And sometimes that you know limits you creatively, but also it opens up a huge audience. So uh, that's kind of how it goes with working with IPs. But if it's a new concept for a game, if you have an idea for a game for apps and maybe your studio doesn't have all the resources to develop it, uh, you would make something called an RFP. RPF or RFP? I can't remember exactly what it is. But basically, you would send out, here's our concept. Here's what we think. You maybe have some basic art and wireframes. And then you send that out to studios that have the full capability of developing it. And then those studios would bid on that project saying, hey, we have these many people we can allocate. Here's what our estimated timeline is. And here's the cost. And on average, games that get published to the App Store that have any sort of revenue potential can be upwards of half a million dollars to create just based off of the amount of time and resources and testing and the amount of products you have to invest in to actually create them. So those are two ways to get made. And then the third way is, you know, somebody comes to you with a game and says, hey, I made a game. You know, I don't have the resources to run a community or to run live operations, which is like the day-to-day bug fixing and stuff like that, replying to players, or maybe I don't have the budget to actually publish it and promote it. Would you be willing to take my game and use your studio to push it to the world? And that's what a publisher is. So our, our studios that I've worked at were considered publishing studios where they actually designed, created, developed, published, and then managed the games once they're live. But other times we would take a game from a smaller, maybe like somebody straight out of school, maybe it's a small little independent studio where they don't have a lot of money, they've bootstrapped their whole project. And we would say, okay, we'll give you this percentage of our overall revenue, but we'll absorb the cost of promoting it. So those are a few ways of how games get made. And usually it comes down to the revenue and uh, finances. Right, cool. And, and yeah. on the marketing side, influencers seem to come up a lot. What has your relationships been like? And you don't like you don't need to mention the, the names, but what what's what does that look like for for studios? Is that a, is that something that's easy to deal with? Is there a lot of ego involved with influencers? You know, when as I mentioned, when I started working in the blogger relations, we saw that influencers had a ton of value. I think before they did, and back in the day, we were able to just give them like a free product to try out. We'd get a full blog review, and it was amazing. They're like, "Wow, I got this free thing! Like, let me do ten tweets and a full blog post and all this," and they'd say, "Thank you." And now they're asking you for five grand and they want all these different contracts signed. And anyway, so it's changed for sure. But working with influencers has changed as well. You know, it used to be a lot of people just manage their own accounts. You would send them a message and uh, they would basically say, yeah, here's my package. Here's how much it costs. But with the way influencers are now, a lot of them are run by agencies, just like any kind of celebrity would or any kind of, um, you know, large brand would. So mm-hmm. we'll actually wind up sending out um, a lot of times an upfront cost just to get their, uh, their access to their network. And then we have to work on some kind of agreement on you know pay per install or pay per conversion. 
uh, and there's a hybrid model there. And that kind of worked well with influencers, but now we work directly with agencies. There's actually full agencies that manage influencers, whether it's YouTube streamers for video games or it's those Instagram accounts that have 5 million followers and just post memes all day. There's actually a lot of marketing um, knowledge and data and analytics behind that. So now we actually run campaigns with influencers very similar to how you would just run an ad campaign on Google. You have ECPMs, which is estimated cost per thousand impressions. So what's it going to cost to get a thousand eyeballs on my ad? And influencers sometimes are very cheap because they have millions of people. The only problem is they're not as targeted. And you're looking at a very large audience that sees content from these people all the time. So if you're not able to get something that's relevant to their audience in there, you're probably going to miss the point of using an influencer. So in the the industry of video games, influencers are pretty much the largest, I'd say, community for paid influencers or paid advertisements. I think the top out of the top um, 100 YouTube video game influencer channels, the 100th position has one and a half million subscribers. So that's how big the audiences are for video game streamers. Whereas you may go to something like uh, Nike and basketball shoe reviews, and that channel's got 8,000 subscribers, but you know it's getting a ton of engagement. Like That's still an influencer. But in the video game industry, it's a lot of really huge numbers. So you really have to find the right audience to target. Otherwise, you're going to be wasting your money. Sure. And I, I've heard a lot about another metric that people always talk in this like cost of customer acquisition or um, yeah. like trying to figure that CPA. out. So how, yeah. So then, how, so, sorry, what's the metric on that? How do you, how do you uh, call it? If I want to talk to talk to talk to talk. Yes. Cost per acquisition. So yes. CPA usually. Yeah. CPA. It's, uh, okay. We used to call it a uh, CPI, you know, cost per install. Obviously you've heard of cost per click, but yes. in industries now you're looking at that first purchase as your goal and you can optimize a lot of your advertising towards it. So people are looking at the CPA cost. And for a company, it's interesting. I heard this once. Starbucks, guess how much the lifetime value of an average Starbucks customer is? So if you've bought one Starbucks, guess how much on average you're going to be worth over your lifetime to them? It's $40,000. That's a bit, a bit lower than that, but it's around $1,800 per person on average. So okay. that's saying somebody that just buys one cup of coffee is included in there. So somebody may spend $50,000 or $100,000 oh, over their life. Uh, right. The average, the average person that buys a Starbucks coffee is worth $1,800 over a lifetime. So Starbucks will spend $1,500 marketing to get you in their store the first time. Right. So that's why you'll see advertisements if you've never downloaded the Starbucks app, probably flooding your newsfeed. And they'll bid very high on that because they can track if you've been there, if you've made a purchase, if you have your card or not. So in the case of video games, maybe the average lifetime value of a user's say 50 cents, uh, you would only want to spend 30 or 40 cents on average to find someone that's an average value of 50 cents over their lifetime. But if you find somebody that makes a purchase, and you know that if you purchase something in our game, you're worth $30 over your lifetime, you'll spend $25 to get somebody to make a purchase. So that's how cost per acquisition is changing, how people market. It's not just about getting clicks and getting people in your store. It's about getting people to make a purchase because then you can determine how much they're going to be worth a lot more accurately. Right. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I think... It will be interesting as technology starts to eat away at some of these, you know, if and then sort of jobs and how that's going to create 
such an importance for these things like like you know getting eyes on whatever content you're producing you know i'm doing this podcast as a way of me trying to understand the kind of the world that is 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 now right and and how we can bring new people and understand the humanity inside of everything that's happening i teach students and and one of the things that's very fascinating to me is like some kids tell their parents i want to be a, a youtube vlogger yeah and in my first episode when i had my mike as a as a guest that's a very real thing now and that's a very real career if you treat it like a career and sometimes i have difficulty trying to explain that to parents or to people that are kind of out of touch in that area yeah it's um, like if somebody said they wanted to become a national geographic photographer you know they'd be like wow go for it but as soon as they say they want to film themselves going on vacations uh with the selfie camera you know they're like that's silly you know and really they're generating content that people consume that the next generation is you know watching hours and hours of I don't know anyone that's bought a National Geographic in the last, you know, two years. So uh, when you hear that, yeah, it's uh, there is a big shift in culture. I mean, we weren't raised with smartphones. Like I think no. maybe our parents had something with an antenna on it that opened up when we were like grade eight or something. But <laughs> at a briefcase that they had to open up. Like exactly, I remember my right? dad because my dad used to own a food services business, and uh, and I remember him having a briefcase that he would like have to open up and then pull out the cord and the like yeah. thing and that the block that the, the, the thing that it sat on was the 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 actual receiver that would keep the yeah. battery alive it was a yeah. whole process oh i mean my dad's a writer and when i was a kid he worked on a typewriter you know and then he started working on something called a data train that actually had discs that were floppy like those big <laughs> bendy ones you'd stick in and latch closed and then wait 10 minutes for it to spool up so yeah like we were raised without devices in our hands whereas now all my little cousins are given an iPhone 6 as a hand-me-down when they're in grade three. So they have like a supercomputer that we didn't even get our hands on until we were in high school. So I didn't think that, you know, being an influencer or something like that was a, a feasible career, but not, neither did I think being a video game marketer was when I was in grade 12. So I think the future is going to be full of jobs that are driven by who consumes that media. And if it's streaming, then it's streaming. It's the way it's going to go. For sure. Yeah, I don't think we have very much control over it. it. Just to be part of it and try to say our own piece in that media, however we decide we want to engage with it, with the audience. You just mentioned your dad. How do you think the lessons from your parents or growing up in your childhood or you know your middle school formation, how do you think that shaped you into wanting to pursue this career? You know, yeah. you mentioned your dad was a writer and... Yeah. Yeah, my mom is a calligraphist and a graphic designer. So she, yes. I always had like pretty good computers around the house. And growing up on the Sunshine Coast, my parents were both telecommuters. So they would invest in fax machines and modems when they were fresh so they could actually work remotely and still be connected. My dad would write the, articles. The original remote workers, honestly. Exactly, yeah. There was I, I actually, remember, yeah, I remember yeah. Frank being like, had his little office off to the side. Yeah. I remember this. I used to have to make noises in the background. So it sounded like he was in an office, you know, <laughs> like turn on the printer and like ruffle some papers and drop binders on his desk and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But we were, we were even on a discovery channel special for something called dots data cafe. It was a weird show back in the day. I remember and, this. I do remember yeah, this. I remember we actually, this. There was a segment on telecommuters and we were, our family was actually featured as like a modern oh, cutting man, edge got- technological, I tried digging it up a while this, ago. I have to get this in the show notes. Like I, I, I like if a, you find I'm this, like a fu- 
Oh man, it's it's hilarious. I'm like a five year old kid, and we look like the cliche, like you know, <laughs> family. Like, oh, there's the kids running around as I'm typing away and sending out a fax and an email when they were like hot shit. So, yeah, we definitely, yeah, we, we I was kind of like grown up in that environment, so that definitely inspired like what I'm doing. I mean, my dad being a journalist, I work in media. My mom being a designer, I work in marketing. You know, it's kind of intertwines and. Being a bit of a nerd and a techie and a futurist is definitely a part of having technology surrounding me. Uh, my sister is the complete opposite. She lives on a farm in Montana. She runs a vet clinic, but we're both doing exactly what we wanted to when we grew up. So I think having that kind of upbringing of seeing their, their independence and seeing how technology allowed that really kind of drove that nerdy passion of mine to be in this industry. Sure. That's that's actually an interesting segue to this next question. My kind of personal view is that technology is a a tool meant for the production, not necessarily the consumption of, of things. Uh, a lot of parents will listen to this and say, I don't want my kid to be on their phone because, you know, they're always addicted to their smartphone. If a parent's listening to this, how should you encourage your child or how should you support your child in using the technology as a tool because like you said like your industry is is revolving around that it's a relevant part of the economy or will continue to be a relevant part of the economy would you make a suggestion about how to balance that yeah i mean if, if you think back in the day when like live theater kind of shifted to movie theaters where news used to be shared in giant like theaters basically people would all go to watch the news that week inside of a movie theater because it was like the new thing and like wow is this new media that was still a social event people were actually interacting while they're consuming digital media or like video media because they're all in this interactive environment i'm sure that the conversations after watching news was highly you know polarized and there's political opinions and all that probably helped define like people's foundational like thoughts on stuff so i guess how that would apply to modern technology and how people could use social media and all the different media we're creating is by having interactive events that use social media to bring people together physically. I know we're in COVID right now and it's like, oh yeah, that's a year from now, but still it'll happen in the future where people can create these amazing things, whether it's uh, a video or some kind of interactive art exhibit that uses digital media where people can interact with their devices, but still have physical interaction, I think that's going to be something that people can kind of combine the two and have like, for instance, there's tons of conferences that got canceled this year and they're all going digital, you know, mobile growth summits, one of them, I'll be speaking at the next one, not the uh, volume one, but I think volume two coming out in August or September and that's going fully digital. They're even looking at doing avatars with virtual reality for some of yeah. the workshops and for some of the panels where you can actually have people sitting in the crowd, like raising their hand and you'd be like seeing them and can point it, you know, so that's that's kind of like a, a step towards that. But actually having people consuming like media while physically being together kind of turns that whole model outside in. So it would, like maybe you need your phone to be at this event and you need to have five friends to come with you. And that forces this real social connection. But once you're there, you're actually interacting with humans face to face. So I think that needs to happen in a lot of yes. ways, like the anti-social social media movement. Like there is, <laughs> there is like the next gen Z that thinks, you know, I want to delete my phone, delete Facebook. And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. There's like a movement of people seeing how the generation before them has been super disconnected. So, you know, I, I, I mean, being a futurist, like, I would predict that in the future, phones may become something that's more of a 
supplement to your life and to your social rather than something that you pivot around and that you're always holding and carrying, whether yeah. that's something that's embedded, whether that's something that is super non-invasive or something that's just so small that it's the size of like a, a jewel or something like that. Maybe that's going to be what happens where it's, it's accessible when you need it, but not, I mean, I've watched a lot of Black Mirror lately, so maybe I'm getting a little too down the rabbit hole with this, but it would be neat to see uh, a future where people do need to physically interact more to consume all the media that we're creating rather than just pulling up your phone and scrolling through a newsfeed. Yeah, I completely agree with all, uh, all those statements. Yeah, the camera on your smartphone going out into nature, taking photos, like having that be there as a tool and pulling it out of your pocket and then using it when you want to take a photo of something and putting it back in your pocket, like, that's such yeah. a powerful use of technology, yeah. right? Or, yeah, you know, taking a video. Concerts, like seeing people at concerts and everyone's looking at the concert through their phone uh. screen. I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's, I've been to a few events and a couple clubs where they don't let you have your phone. Some people great. are like, screw this. I'm not coming in. Like, good. Mm-hmm. Great. Like, I don't want you to be here. <laughs> if like you're the kind of person that can't go out for a night without their phone in their hand. Uh, a lot of times it's when there's like a celebrity there, there's some sort of, record release or something where you can't actually capture footage but it creates a whole different environment it's creepy where you don't see phones and you don't see people on their phones some people look lost and that's because (laughs) you know it's like it's like yeah like it's hilarious you just want to talk to people that look like they don't know how to because that's all you can do and it's it's interesting seeing how people don't really know how to socialize in those situations and how important having a phone is, even just like write someone's phone number down or whatever. I had that but situation yeah. today. I, I met up with uh, a mentor of mine and he was giving me all this information. And as I'm entering it in, like dies. And I normally have a moleskin with a pen and yeah. I had just forgotten it because I was rushing out the door. And it was just like, yeah. I'm like, now what? Like, it yeah. was like my life was crumbling. Yeah. Um, yeah. Seven That's... digits is about as much as anyone can remember. And even then I struggle to remember seven digits two minutes after totally. I saw it. So totally. yeah, it's, uh, it's something that you got to train your brain a bit on, but I think by removing a bit of that phone connection, it'll just benefit everything else. So uh, talking about environments and like socializing, being in like physical spaces, where do you find yourself the most creative? Like, is there certain places or spaces that you seek out if you're working on a project that like isn't your your normal office or your normal yeah i i honestly find i mean this sounds a bit like yeah no shit but having a couple of drinks with people from the industry that's when you get all the war stories you know you start like maybe after a conference you go out for the happy hour and then that's where the kind of flow and the juices get going you'll get secrets you know you'll get those those like oh yeah did you know this about that company and you know i find that that's inspiring for me in a an industry that's changing so quickly but also where people let their guard down a bit and where after absorbing a lot of information you probably have a lot of things that oh yeah that reminds me of this or oh because i heard that talk here's my opinion on it and you'll get a lot of that firsthand knowledge and that's where i find a lot of times i'm i'm my most creative or my most social or sharpest is when i'm surrounded by people that are passionate about the industry that may have their own nuances that they've encountered. And I'm like, oh, I feel the same pain point or, oh yeah, I totally heard that. Like, can you confirm? Yeah. So I find that's where a lot of those kind of really inspirational moments happen. And I've been able to learn a lot about, you know, the industry and people and been kind of ahead of the curve in that sense by being in those environments. So that's what, that's definitely what I'd say was probably the most inspiring. 
Here's a curveball question. What would the people at your work be most surprised to know about you personally? That I'm in the Guinness book. What? <laughs> Come on, story time. For playing the clarinet. <laughs> yeah, um, this is actually from Chadalek when I was in grade nine band. I was part of okay. the world's largest orchestra. We went to Vancouver and all of our band class, as well as something like 250 other schools and a bunch of musical groups all joined together at what was then GM Place, now Rogers Arena, where the Canucks play. And we all played Mozart Symphony Number no. 5 for three minutes, made it an official record, and I got a plaque saying, you're in the Guinness Book. So I was, it wasn't an individual record, but I was definitely part of that. So I don't think many people would know that about me. There you go. I, I also participated in, a, in, a, in a, something about the largest skinny dip. I can't remember what year that was, but I was definitely going to UBC <laughs> at the time. And there was yeah, the largest, the largest, or they were trying to. I don't know if they succeeded or not. I have no idea. It was summertime and, and I didn't have my clothes on, so I joined everybody else. I, it wasn't intentional or anything. I just, yeah. okay, let's was, do it. Um, I was down at Wreck Beach maybe a few weeks ago when the sun got really hot out here and it was it was dead. Obviously, people are socially distancing, but yeah, it was it was magical being down there. It's a pretty yeah. cool beach. It's very beautiful. And for those that don't know and that are in Vancouver, Rec Beach is a, kind of a hidden gem of out at out at UBC at University of British Columbia. Uh, it's a bit of a hike. How many stairs do you think there is? Lots. Yeah, lots. It's <laughs> perfectly lots. describing it. <laughs> lots. Yeah. It's always um, easier coming up because you go down with drinks and food. You eat it all and drink it all at the beach, and then your coolers are like coming home. So there you go. That, <laughs> yeah. That's that's one way of looking at it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's that's a positive framing. I always find find it like Everest because you know depending on how long you stay, the sun's going down. Now it's like you're in the yeah. dark trying to. You're half baked. You're oh my god, burnt <laughs> a bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, when you love your, your job, it's a career and it's kind of a lifestyle, right? What's your escape? I remember you used to BMX. Do you still do that? I don't BMX anymore. I do ride motorcycles. Okay. That's been something I kind of shifted gears, pun intended, into the <laughs> motorsports two-world lifestyle. On my 25th birthday, also known as my quarter-life crisis, I bought a uh, vintage Suzuki Superbike. And I've had that now for about seven years. And it's been a bit of a release for me. It's terrifying. It's like owning a fighter jet, but it's a lot of fun. So that's definitely something that's a release for me. And given that the bike's 30 years old, it's a bit of a project too. So something that I, I enjoy a lot is working on cars, working on engines, a um, bit of a gearhead. I'm the founder of the uh, F1 Vancouver group as well. So there's about 380 members in Vancouver that are all big F1 fans. And we have meetups and events. We, we try and get bars to sponsor us and They'll do cool. like the F1 breakfast and we'll get up at like 8 a.m. and watch a race in Singapore or whatever. Sweet. So that's something I do outside of um, the normal stuff. I'm definitely, I love life on two wheels and getting my fingers greasy. Uh, but yeah, to stay, stay fit and healthy. I play soccer a lot. I played for my university for five years and I still play in the men's league in Vancouver. I'm not 35 yet, but I'm playing in the master's division now. So I guess every over 35 team is allowed to have two or three guys that are under 35, but over 30. So I fit in that little cohort of like rookies, nice. I guess. Perfect. So it feels like, yeah, it feels Perfect like I'm spot. 19 again. Yeah, it's, yeah. Great. So <laughs> it's great. I can't play in the provincial tournament yet, but our team won the league last year and uh, right before COVID hit. So I'll be playing that again once the league opens up. I still play rec soccer with Urban Rec a couple days a week. So that's kind of how I keep my, uh, my bones strong. 
Sure. And Urban Rec, for those of you that live in Vancouver, is a fantastic company that uh, provides uh, great recreation opportunities. So if you're a professional in Vancouver, just moved to the area, uh, definitely check them out. Yeah, yeah, Urban Rec. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. So, Kev, another one of our shared passions is uh, technology and people who use it across different industries. So, like Elon Musk and SpaceX. And I remember us talking a while ago about a tweet that you sent out for SpaceX. So, can you chat a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I actually uh, I tweeted out the metrics after my tweet because I was like, holy okay. shit, like this happened. So, um, yeah, one of the tweets is the actual tweet I sent out. They kind of got picked up by SpaceX and it was a like top tweet beneath their announcement of the landing of the first Dragon 9 back in, I don't know, it was 2017, I think, a few years ago. And uh, then the other tweet I sent out was a screenshot of the metrics, which have, since I, I pulled them today, I mean, they've gone up even since then. But the tweet had a hashtag that no one else had sent out yet. And it was, fuck yes, SpaceX. And I tweeted that with the screenshot <laughs> of the landing. And I was really quick on it. Like, I had screenshot it and I was going to send out the tweet just from my own profile with the hashtag and at mention SpaceX and whatever tag Elon Musk, whoever. But as I was about to publish it, SpaceX tweeted successful landing. They had almost the same screenshot that I had just taken from their own webcast. So I just commented on their tweet with mine instead. And because it got posted, I guess, timely, it got a lot of engagement right away. And the way Twitter works is if a tweet is the top engaged tweet or the top engaged comment or reply to a tweet, it'll actually get put up at the top. So I got tons and tons of impressions because anybody going to SpaceX's page, looking at their most recent tweet was also seeing mine. So Twitter shows you all the insights such as clicks on your link, clicks yeah. on your photo, how many profile visits, followers you got. I didn't get a lot of new followers, but I had hundreds of thousands of impressions on this one tweet. And when I looked at my timeline in Twitter in the analytics to show my tweets over the last month, there was like, you know, a couple hundred impressions. I've got like maybe a thousand followers. I don't even know. And uh, then this one tweet just went ballistic and just made all the other lines look like flat, basically. Yeah, um, the, iron, the, the irony of the image looking like a rocket ship. I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, just one big rocket. I think I, I sent out another tweet when SpaceX tweeted something also being like, some successful information and more stats. I reused my hashtag and again, it got a lot of virality to it. So I think overall two tweets I sent out had something like half a million impressions, all organic. And I learned a lot from this because I've worked in Twitter and tried to make things go viral. Like we even had a meme team, one of the agencies I worked at, that was literally just trying to create something with a brand's image on it that could go viral. And uh, the thing I learned is have something kind of humorous have something that's relevant and have something that's timely. So the more quickly you can kind can of you, engage can with you something. Go over those, can you go over those again? Just just so like... like, like yeah, so yeah. Some, something that's kind of humorous, like in my case, it was fuck yes, SpaceX. People were celebrating, you know, and it was kind of like a, a fun twist on what was happening. And because it was right beside SpaceX's, it kind of like had that relevancy as well. Also, the tweet was like laid out properly with at mentioning the right amount of people. I'm not sure if that helped, but it definitely got some trickle down. And, and then having something that's relevant. So in my case, yeah, it was relevant to the landing. It was another photo that was comparable. It had something, you know, about SpaceX in it. And then the fact that I sent it out literally within like moments of SpaceX tweeting it, it was super timely. And if you missed that, maybe by a few minutes, I may have missed all of that virality because somebody else's tweet would have got 
the momentum going. So right. something that's yeah, something that's relevant, it's funny, and then timely. So yeah, yeah that, those are the three. There you go, man. Things I, you know, you, you know what you could do right now. You could take that metric and then you draw a little fire underneath, and then and then yeah. and then you just like and then you just it just like fizzles out, like a little <laughs> gif where it fizzles out, and then you yeah. just you share it again. No, I have tried to, <laughs> to recreate the magic and it hasn't happened. So yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe that'll go viral. Uh, Who knows? Yeah, man. I'll definitely get, I'll get, I'll get you links to those tweets. So you guys can go check it out yourself. That's cool. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's, it, you know, I think it's so important for people. The reason I asked the personal questions, going back to our pre- previous kind of little segment there was, I think it's so important to realize that people have this, you know, personal life and, and oftentimes people will engage with, you know, our persona or our ego, our professional sort of version of ourselves. And oftentimes people don't, you know, see that other side of us going the opposite way. Is there some sort of day-to-day problems like that are really difficult for you or, or people that are marketing games in general? Yeah, I'd say the number one thing that's been prevalent and always has a new way of creeping up is just the fraud that you get with online traffic. You'll find people overclaim what they're, what they're selling. They say they have so many people they can reach and then it's a fraction of that or they're reselling someone else's services through their own portal. So uh, a lot of times working with third-party vendors, you encounter kind of black hat methods of doing a lot of marketing. And because the, the industry is in its infancy and it's growing and so many people have their fingers in so many different pies, you, you see a lot of that. And there's ways to combat it through you know, fraud verification, through different attribution tools and different ways of um, kind of filtering out IP addresses and click flooding and all these things. But what's click flooding? Sorry, just to clarify. Yeah, so click flooding is similar to like you'll see those farms with like a thousand devices on a wall, and there's just like a little hand like tapping download or like search or whatever. And sometimes you'll see all of those clicks coming from one IP address. So it's easy to say, oh wow, we got oh, all these clicks. Man. Yeah, like human, ingen- human ingenuity. Right? So you'll I see didn't these- even know that existed. Yeah, there, I mean, if you do a quick Google search for like cell phone farm or phone farm, you'll see that there's people that search the app store for certain keywords and hit search and then click on a game and download it, delete the game, go back, do it again. And it's just like this process that repeats and it kind of gives you this organic lift, but it's completely fraudulent. So And, p- there and is- people then pay for that, I would assume. Is, that a- is it legal to do that? It's, it's, I mean, it's hard. I mean, frowned upon, but yeah, if you catch it, then you obviously, you know, you ask for your money back. You, you blacklist that company, you complain about them. You try and, you know, share that knowledge across your industry, but it happens so often in so many different ways that it's really hard to get ahead of. So the way that it's being combated right now is a lot of these tools to do attribution, which is basically connecting uh, click on your ad to a download of your game. There's a system in between the two that carries all of your device info and where you clicked on it, what ad, and it tells the game, here's who this person is and where they came from. And then the game goes, oh, okay, now we know who that is. Now we can tell you all the stuff they do in your game. So you can kind of connect those two together. How does that work with it? privacy, Kevin? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, so any game you download has usually terms and services privacy policy scroll scroll read it. accept yeah a lot of people do that you know if you use something like google play services for games or you use uh, the itunes equivalent where there's like game center you actually agree to the services when you sign up for game center and also when you open up your phone for the first time and it says hi welcome to apple or welcome to your new android 
you scroll down and it says, yes, accept, accept. Well, all of that says your device information and your profile and your user ID is all contained on this device. If you click on an ad, that device may be shared with that ad provider. And that's something that everybody agrees to do on their phone. And it's almost impossible to blacklist that. When it comes to your social profiles, if you log in with Facebook and a new game you downloaded or you sign up for even like, uh, I was on a site today, what was it? Origin. I was downloading a new EA game and I had to sign in with either an email address or I could click a button and sign in with Google. So I click that button, I verify my Google account, and now all of that information is now shared with Origin. So when it comes to the privacy, you can turn off a lot of your settings. You can turn off ad sharing, you can turn off your information and basically it'll ruin your experience because now you won't have access to location services. You won't be able to see ads that are tailored to you. Maybe certain apps won't even let you in because you're not allowing them to access your data. So there is a lot of privacy there, but it's completely anonymous. Like I don't know what your name is. I just know your device ID. I know what kind of device you have, where you are, what apps you're playing, but uh, I don't know who you are. So, so Google and and Apple are working together on COVID. Do you know how yes. that's working? Like, can you explain that in layman's terms or in simplistic terms for the audience to understand? So- yeah, so there's there's pretty, uh, one way of looking at it is most phones have four primary ways of communicating. One of them's Wi-Fi, one of them's your mobile network, and then you have shorter range communication platforms like Bluetooth or NFC. Yes. So yes. NFC, your, your phone has to almost be touching something or within like a foot or two. Bluetooth, it's about 35 feet, roughly, depending on your phone's quality and how clear obstruction is. And then your mobile network and Wi-Fi are obviously what those are. So the way that Apple and Google, if I'm, I think this is how it worked, is uh, they actually uh, shared their Bluetooth statistics with each other. And the reason that's more relevant for COVID is because, as I mentioned, it's only about 30 feet that Bluetooth even works in. So it's not telling Apple and Google where everybody is based off their mobile network and where their GPS and their location and their Wi-Fi is, but only if you pass near somebody that has this app installed and Bluetooth on. So it's able to see if there's 100 people within 10 feet of each other. And also if you passed somebody on the street maybe a day ago that actually got tested and is positive for COVID, you can see other devices when you turn on Bluetooth and you can see, oh, there's five iPhones near me. Same thing on Android. Those aren't usually shared with iPhone and Apple or and Android devices. But for COVID, Apple and Google said they'd open up that sharing and they're able to see by Bluetooth when people are joined really closely or when they pass somebody that had COVID. Um, and is that available pro- now? I think there's one in Montreal that's available. I don't think it's a Google and Apple thing, but it is a Bluetooth app that tells you uh, if you came near somebody that has COVID. The only problem is, A, you need that app installed, and B, your Bluetooth always has to be on. And then also you you have to agree to sharing this, right? People still right. have the ability to say, no, I don't want you to know where I've been all the time. And you can totally. get arrested if you're in a big group, right? You may actually have somebody knock on your door and say, hey, we tracked you with 15 other people in this area, yeah. you know, so it's a, uh, it's a good idea. I think if people are hyper-conscious or hyper-conjuracts about COVID and whatever, they're going to be all about that. Sure. But from what I know, I think Google and Apple said they would share anonymous Bluetooth data just so they can help. If there was contact tracing, they'd be able to help people, you know, you get a push message saying, Hey, warning, yeah. you came within six feet of somebody three days ago, go get checked. Yeah. I, I love when technology companies decide to, to partner I, I, inside of their closed ecosystems. They open a little piece of it 
to to make it for the better for everyone so yeah well, um, I, forgot, but like, I forgot about gps i mentioned there's wi-fi mobile network nfc and bluetooth but also gps it doesn't really sure. communicate but it does have your location and that could be shared the irony of all this in there's still a human that needs to make that decision so there's some examples in asia where it was mandated that they must do that but i think when you're when when users are given choice it, it's really hard and i i don't think that's wrong by the way i i, I like the fact yeah. that you're protecting privacy i just that's that's always the kind of tension i think that approach is a great way to get people to leave their phone at home <laughs> right <laughs> well you have to have your location shared well then i'll just leave my phone there you go now no one's on their phones anymore perfect <laughs> problem solved yeah <laughs> yeah yeah there, there's a, there is a bit of an irony in that isn't there because my, yeah. my belief, I don't want you to take your phone. If I'm meeting you, leave your phone in your pocket. Like, yeah, it drives me yeah. insane. And I mean, I don't know if this is me getting grumpy and old. You know, there couldn't be anything more frustrating to me than you spending yeah. the time to get it, get in the car, travel a distance. If, and then that person be on the phone. Why didn't I just FaceTime you? When I was in New York, I was at a conference there last year and I found something really interesting that. I saw it happen a few times, actually. I would be at some patios up on this rooftop patio. It was a gorgeous day. I didn't see many people on their phones. And I thought that was kind of strange considering I'm in New York, right? Like everyone's probably like super connected. But I think they valued their time like not working and being at a rooftop like so much more than they do like being on their phone all day. But the one thing that I noticed people would do is they'd be like, oh, excuse me, I have to send a text message. And it actually take a moment go and send their message and then come back to a conversation with you. And I was like, that was so polite and so cool. I was like, no one really does that. Like, hold on. I have to take a call. Of course, you're not just going to start talking in front of somebody, but pull your phone out and start texting when you're in a conversation. It's kind of like an FU, right? So when somebody takes the moment to be like, sorry, I need to send a text message. And then they know that that's almost as rude as just picking up a call in front of you. I thought that was really courteous and also something that seemed to be a trend in New York. Hopefully it's something that catches on more because yeah, it's, it's nice. If someone's just scrolling Instagram, like say that, you know, hold on, I need to go scroll Instagram because I, I'm addicted, right? Like go do that, but don't do it in front of me if we're in a yeah. personal like environment. So yeah, that was something I picked up on and that I'm trying to do a bit more of. Build, building on that, actually, when I talk with parents, like if I, if I'm giving some, you know, a workshop or a talk to, to a group of parents with like technology and how their, their kids or children are using technology. I always say before you ask them to to get off their phones, ask them what they're doing. Yeah. Right. What are you doing on your phone? Yeah, because so important. <laughs> it, it, that that should be the first question because our assumption is is somebody's looking at their phone, and we create all these stories or narratives about what's happening with their user interaction, and the reality is that 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 kid could be learning, they could be taking a photo, they could be doing yeah. their homework, they could be there's a thousand other things. How can we allow students to use a cell phone in class as a learning tool and make them aware of what instances that, that it's going to be a great learning tool? Because in university, yeah. they could use it as a learning tool, right? In yeah. San Francisco, to build on your story, in San Francisco, I've noticed there's some restaurants that just say, no, yeah. no, you can't have your phone here, which well, I, I think is great. When I was in university, we used to do this thing where we would take an empty picture and everybody would have to throw their phones into the picture. And uh, that's because everybody had like flip phones and weird like you know devices but now you just got to stack like a deck of cards in the center of the table because yeah. everyone's got a big flat so you'd see the the picture would start vibrating and there's someone's phone going off you'd see people starting to itch and this is years ago when people weren't doing a thousand things on their phone it's probably like a call or a text right only 
Um, but now we'll be like, all right, everybody put your phones down and there'll be a stack about eight devices high with just phones. <laughs> and if somebody goes off and you touch it, then you're buying drinks. So that's one way to stop the social part. But I do know restaurants that actually enforce that. and You have to leave your phone at the front. Um, you can go and check in if you want to, but there's like a little area where you have to like interact with your device at. So yeah, hopefully that's uh, that's more of a trend. I would I would be opposed to that. If there's any industrial designers out there, I have some. I have a product licensing idea that I would love to explore, which which looks at cell phone storage for for people when in restaurants and 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 metrics and data to, to back that up. So yeah, so. yeah, it's exactly this premise though. It's frustrating to sit down to a meal when you're supposed to have people enjoy your food and the experience and the ambiance, and then for them yeah. to totally disconnect from that that experience yeah. of the senses to then sit back on their phone, which they could have been doing on the couch at home. Yeah, like one thing I was guilty of back in the day when phones were new and whatever, I would go to HMV uh, with my phone and I would just take photos of the top like 10 albums and then I'd go home and download them on Napster or uTorrent or whatever, right? So I could see the staff being like, this guy's not going to buy anything. You know, he's just walking around. So I think some stores for sure, hey, you want to come in here and listen to music or playing instruments or whatever, like not just window shop with your phone and go and check cheaper prices online. I can see that being sort of like, hey, that's not allowed in here. It's more about the experience than it is just about finding something you can touch in real life and then buying it online because I know a lot of people do that. But yeah, in restaurants or in social settings, obviously movie theaters or concerts and stuff, like that should be something that maybe is banned. Yeah, I always call these things enabling constraints. And it's just how do you ensure that everybody has a better time by actually putting some rules around it. And, and sometimes that actually leads to better experiences over time. Yeah. yeah. What's the worst that can happen? Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you miss a notification. <laughs> I think we're, we're pretty good for this one. I, yeah. I mean, I've taken an hour and 15 minutes of your time. I told you it was going to take an hour and a half. And so I'm just going to end on the same question that I always uh, kind of end with everyone. Do you have a philosophy of life? So you can answer one of these questions or answer them together. And then two, what kind of impact do you want to leave on people? Yeah. I mean, my philosophy has changed a bit as I've matured. I definitely try to enjoy life as much as I can, like every day. You know, I've had, you know, years that were up and down. And I think that, you know, I've, you know, 33, 34 this summer, not getting any younger. I definitely have different priorities, but I try to do things every day that I enjoy, whether that's, you know, just taking some time to go play some video games or going for a walk and taking some photos of random stuff and editing the shit out of it. Or, you know, just trying to recently like reconnect with people on hangouts and zoom and whatever, just try and find something every day that you enjoy doing and do it. As far as my philosophy on what I want to do impactful in the future as a teacher, primarily one thing I remember from university was my professors that were really passionate about whatever they were teaching and not just like phoning it in, you know, and that's what really stuck with me. So when I teach, I crack jokes. I try to be as passionate as I can. I try to get people excited about the industry I work in. And I get a lot of feedback from students saying that they really enjoyed my enthusiasm, my humor, my perspective on stuff. And they would love to chat, hang out, have a coffee. And to me, that's verifying that I'm impacting them, not just with the topics and the content they're learning, but with that passion and that uh, kind of entertainment value as well. I've spoken so highly of some of my professors from university to friends and they're like, oh, I remember that guy. He was great. Or 
oh, I'm going to tell my friend to take a class with him. And that to that teacher, I'm sure is one of the most valuable things he could hear is that, oh, so-and-so loved your class from years ago, recommended me to take it. And hopefully that results in another good experience. So I think that passing on my passion and my kind of teaching style is something that, you know, I'd love to see a legacy from. Awesome. That's great, man. And I I think that you do exude that. You're a very passionate person and you're intellectually capable and smart. I really want to thank you very much for spending the time and, you know, sharing your time with me and allowing me to iterate on my uh, upcoming journey as a podcast host. For those of people that want to find you, kind of, you know, connect with you, they're curious, maybe they have some more questions. Where can they find you on 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 social or where, where's the yeah. best place to reach you? Yeah, Twitter's probably the best. It's totally open profile. My views are my own. It's Kevin Kevin, spelled K-E-V-A-N, K-E-V-A-N. Uh, and then on LinkedIn, Kevin O'Brien. I'm very engaged there. Uh, always open to connect with people, share some more stories and share some connections. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on the show, Kevin. And I look forward to having round two with you sometime in the near future. Sounds good. Thanks again, Sean.